This is the special guest Saturday you've been waiting for. Today, Meg and Dr. G get together with Texans running back, musical artist, and public intellectual Arian Foster. Arian is ready to get into the economic exploitation of college athletes, social justice and equality for all, and of course, love and money. You know it's going to get political, but this is Sport Knowledge. Hey, Meg and Dr. G here for yet another special guest Saturday brought to you by SPKN, the Sport Professional Knowledge Network. We are so pumped to have with us former running back and talented musical artist Arian Foster sitting down with us today. As many of you know, Arian played college football for University of Tennessee and professionally for the Houston Texans. Arian holds records for rushing yards and rushing touchdowns, but this guy ain't in a hurry. He feels lucky enough to have a unique platform and uses it to download, disclose, and discuss social issues and injustices. Arian, welcome to SPKN Special Guest Saturday. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate you. What's on everyone's mind is how do you know G? Yeah, so me and G go way back. Um, he was on the staff at the University of Tennessee, and I was one of the non-paid employees of the at the University of Tennessee. I was a former player there, and he was always on my bumper because I, I never did what I was supposed to do. So, <laughs> so we go way back. Thank you for the segue, because one of the things that I want to chat with you about, and, th and thank you for being here. I mean, some of my fondest days, right, are back in the UT days. I felt like a, a non-paid employee myself, too. And and what they did to graduate assistants, too, you're right, you're working 80 hours a week. Yeah, um, that's wild. You know, same thing. We get a tuition break, and that, that was about it. But you, you kind of do the self-degradation humor, and, and you've always been like that. One of the reasons why I want to have you on and chat with you is you are, I think, a public intellectual. You have been since college, if you want to use the term outspoken, but you have always been articulate. You've spoke your piece, you spoke your truth. And, and I think that in a way kind of gets people in trouble because they don't like to hear that. And so, I mean, I think one of the things to chat about is your experience being an athlete, being a professional athlete now in, in NFL retirement, but on to your next chapter in life, you know, what gives you passion to speak about things and where does that come from? I appreciate the sentiment, brother, by the way. But um, I think in, in general, I uh, I was really lucky with the upbringing that I had. Naturally, my, my way of existing doesn't really coincide with how sports and more particularly how football operates. Football is not an individualistic sport. It's very team oriented. It's very we and us. And to allow individuals to exist inside of that atmosphere, I think is actually a benefit, but they have always deemed it as kind of a they always say they don't want any, um, what do they always say? They always say they don't want any distractions. They, they, yeah. they deem it as a distraction, but that's a whole nother conversation. But I think uh, in general, uh, growing up, my mother and my father, they never really forced anything upon us. They kind of taught us how they thought, whether it be religiously or politically. And then they said, you know, find your truth, like whatever suits you. And I think giving you a baseline on how to understand this world and then giving you the tools to, to, to investigate on your own, I think it's the best way to parent. And I think I was very lucky in that aspect. And so I kind of carried that throughout my entire life. And so, you know, I've said and done some things I'm not proud of and I, I regret. And I think I look back on it as like what a dumb kid I was. But I think that was all part of the process in molding who I am today. And I'm pretty sure in 10, 15, 20 years, I'm gonna look back and say, what a stupid 30 year old I was. Hopefully, right? <laughs> but uh, I think uh, in general, man, I'm just I'm just an inquisitive cat. I just I just care about first and foremost, like what I think. I care about I does my do my thoughts, does my internal dialogue with myself 
or monologue? Is my internal monologue with myself? Is it in is it in concordance with reality, or am I just fitting myself this echo chamber? And I think that's the danger we had to get into a longer conversation about it. But mm-hmm. this is the danger we have in society in general is I think people just want to be fed what they already believe, and I I actively seek out my own biases to 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 give another perspective to myself, and uh, I think that's the most healthy way to live. And who knows if I'm right or wrong, but you know I, I just I just try to make sure that I and being honest with myself, first and foremost. How, what, you, what have you learned over the last several years doing, you know, the, the Bobby Fino, the podcast, the shows, you know, the public engagement? What are, what are some of those kind of learning experiences where you look back and go, wow, you know, this is different than when I, when I started or it's changed my mind or evolved my thought process? I started out extremely pessimistic. <laughs> I'm still pessimistic, but I, I, I understand where it's rooted now. My pessimism isn't rooted in my desire for despair in the world. I think my pessimism is rooted for my internal optimism. Like I want things to be better. I I want the best for humanity. I want the best for humans. But I think there's some flaws in our systems and some flaws in our thinking that prohibits that. And so I've gotten my mind changed via conversation. And that, that to me is a powerful thing is when you can listen to people with the intent of actually listening to what they have to say rather than just waiting to talk. I think that's the most powerful thing I've learned throughout this thing is uh, throughout my post career is like really listening to people. Like I think far too often we're just like waiting for somebody to stop talking to get our point across rather than just really trying to listen and soak in what they're saying. Even if you disagree with them, just hear them out, like for real, hear them out. And I think in doing that, two things can happen. I think one, you can actually get your mind changed on things because you don't know everything. Nobody knows everything, but two, um, is that you can uh, begin to understand what it feels like to walk in their shoes. And so you can begin to execute the empathy that you probably love in other folks. I love that. You know, I, I always feel like if, if I'm not uncomfortable, I'm not, I'm not really learning. So I love, I love what you said before. And then um, as far as listening, I think that's, there's no question. That's part of the problem. I'm so tired of everybody yelling over each other. It's making me nuts. Well, and I'm curious to come back to this. One of the things that I learned actually in grad school at Tennessee through research, qualitative research, is listening to understand versus listening to respond. And I think that's kind of the short way of saying, right, when I'm trying to actually hear what you're saying before I can just jump in and beat you down or just say what I want to say, too. Yep. Yep. No, it's, it's, it's so important, especially nowadays, because we're living in an unprecedented time where when I was growing up, if you wanted to research a fact, you had to use the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> right that's that's not a thing anymore well you I have microfiche now, <laughs> I, don't, see, I don't even know what that one is <laughs> that's not a thing anymore now all that information is at your fingertips but with you know there's every action there's an equal and opposite reaction with with information comes misinformation and so if we don't have a consorted effort to 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 filter out bad information or or source sourcing your information then what you have is i think what we're currently experiencing is like i i, I stated the other day about uh, i think i was on twitter or something like that and we were talking about like my ideal world my idealistic world and i was like it has to be rooted in like facts and and our our current up-to-date scientific knowledge and some guy was like well who's facts and like to me that was like wow whose facts is that's a thing to people like well it's your facts and so it's like not to get political but you have people that think alternative facts are a thing and i think if 
if we if we don't have a consorted effort to to understand critical thinking and teach critical thinking as kids, then we have opened up Pandora's box in a very dangerous way. And it has to start from a young age. Mm -hmm. And if it and if it doesn't, then there's some crazy things that can happen. I have my ideas, but I won't I'll keep it. Well, I want to chat about too is right is social science versus natural science. And I know you've got an interest in physics, math, but then you've got philosophy, you know, and, and do you write with philosophers, right? And it's the spectrum of our time. Some people say we are truly now living in somewhat of the postmodern time where facts don't matter. But that, that's also a, a very lightweight reading of postmodernism. And, and it's not to say that, you know, that all facts are, there is no truth or facts or science is not irrefutable, but we've come to a point where science has not taken us further and further and further, but science is also weaponized for destruction, for the benefit of a few, and it's used in ways. And then you've got other people that just truly just make up stuff and don't look at any sort of reason, evidence, or values. And so then we say, well, who's facts? Or, or everything is relative. I think we're on the brink of like a civil or a global war because what we observe in reality my okay, so so my, my belief system is not contingent on 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 how I feel, right? How I feel might be in concordance with my belief system, but it's not contingent. And so a lot of people like it it hangs on that. Like how I feel becomes the barometer of your truth or not truth. And that's where the danger comes in. It's it's where it's it's a lot of people's identities are beholden to this this either like a system or a party or a or whatever the case may be. And that cannot be the case. And, and when it becomes the case, then you have political wedges that, that cannot be broken down because then you're just arguing feelings. And how can a feeling be wrong? It's what you feel. It cannot be wrong. And so if, if that's the case, then we have to have a, a foundation. We have to have a, a metric in which, we, in which we can both agree this is the system that it may it may have some flaws but this is the system that has got us this far and it's the most accurate way of deciding what is true and what is not true if there is no metric in which we agree upon then it's just my click first your click and that's and that's i think we're at, we're on the precipice of that if we don't have some kind of standard so i'm curious like let's take it into sports and like you could talk about paying college athletes right mm -hmm. like there is no i in team we're all a team we all work together right except for when we're talking about financial uh, equity or payment, right? You know, they don't, yeah. you know the, the financial situation never <clears throat> goes into that conversation. All right. So you got playing, paying college athletes, especially football players, basketball players that make a lot of money uh, for the university and for others. You got protesting and you need with Kaepernick and others too. There, from those sorts of things, where, where did, what's the role of facts and feelings? Because I would say that emotions are critical to human condition. And that we need to listen and understand them, but something like you know the economic exploitation of college athletes, brain injury in, in, in NFL and contact sports in general, as well as you know civil and you know, social protests and those sorts of things. I don't know if it has a clear-cut answer like physics does. Or so that I mean, you, that's a great point. I bring that up all the time, right? So you have I always say I hate to get political, but I'm of the opinion that there isn't anything that isn't political. Every single thing is political, and so we, like to your point. It's a great point is that you have two very distinct forms of science. One is social science and one is what they call hard science yep. or what you like natural science. And if I drop a pin, I can calculate exactly when it's going to hit the ground. I know all of that stuff, right? 
um, when it comes to social science, anecdotes matter a hundred percent. And so it is not an exact science as a physical science is. It cannot be because you're dealing with variables of human emotions. And that is in itself a whole other can of worms. Like we, we don't even know what consciousness is. Like we, we don't, we don't understand the human anatomy. We don't understand our chemistry like we would like to. And so because that's the case, I think there has to be leeway and have, there has to be empathy. And you can get a, a, an idea of a situation through the amalgamation of data, right? But there's no way to understand fully a situation. It's just, it's just hard to do. And so you have to understand what you're dealing with. And so a lot of people, like you said, like the weaponized science and they'll say, well, the facts don't, don't add up. Well, that may be the case in the certain sample set that you use. But there are other variables maybe unaccounted for. There, there are plenty of things that can be, and, and data and statistics are always manipulated for both sides of the political spectrum. And so you have to come at it with an, with an open mind. And I think we should just rely on, that's why I say, I think we should rely on listening to people. If you feel like you're marginalized, if you feel like, if you feel like this, let's have this conversation, right? And let's do everything that we can to support people that and give them systems that 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 aren't disproportionately affecting other people that we can agree on right for whatever the the factors are and and see if we can even the playing field right and so to me that's the only remedy is to listen to people if you if you do feel a disenfranchised or if you don't feel disenfranchised we have to listen and and when you're dealing with things like 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 paying uh, student athletes i mean I, that's just a that's just a great point so i always I always say this is like the majority of people not all, but the majority of people that oppose collegiate athletes getting paid tend to fall on the conservative side of the political aisle, right? If you, if you break down their belief systems, they are for open and free market. But when it comes to young kids being the labor force for a billion dollar business, they don't see them as that. They hide behind this guise of, oh, they're amateurs though. It is a made-up term. The, the the man who invented that stated that explicitly for the amateur status of just not paying them. And so in order to be like intellectually consistent with your economic view and your and your view on collision sports, I think that side has to do a lot of soul searching. So how would you break that down? I mean, who would get paid? And how, how would that work if you agreed that they needed to get paid? Is it only football? Is it only, you know, part of what they bring in? Because then look at the soccer, you know, the, the women's soccer and the men's soccer. I mean, how do you decide who gets, who gets the bucks? Right. And see, I mean, this will get into a deeper conversation of uh, an economic conversation of, of capitalism, capitalism and its roots and its goals. Capitalism's goals is to maximize profits and cut losses. And so if you, if you want to operate in a system in which that is the case, then you're going to have this disparity in, in income. There's just no other way around it. If you look at our, literally what's going on in our economy with regular job forces, that's what's happening because that's what this system yields. And so if you, if you, if you enjoy capitalism, right? then this is what it yields. It yields cutting some probably. If, 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 the, if the football program is making $80 million a year 
100 million dollars a year and the soccer team is making or costing money and not making money then economically it's not feasible to keep that soccer program intact right and so the answer is is very multifaceted so i i'm i'm not a proponent of cutting other sports right i'm a proponent of yeah i mean we're talking about you know yeah I, making I, and, the, and, the field equal that, that doesn't quite work <laughs> well no no it, it, it makes it it makes it fair it doesn't make it equal it makes it fair in under under this system right under this system and so what i'm saying is you can't have your cake and eat it too if you want this system if you if you want to live under capitalism this is what happens this is what happens and what you're doing is you're you're against labor unions right you're against these very things that are essential for capitalism and so in order to massage your belief system like you have to you, there you you have there's some reconciliation that has to go on i'm 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 with this like more for the community thing, right? I'm with it. But under this current system, it's exploitation. Oh yeah, I think there's a couple of things too to think about is one fundamentally can you can we agree or what's the what are the arguments for paying particularly high revenue, high profit sports like football, men's basketball. I, I would so that, that's kind of bar number one. The logistics of how to pay athletes I think is the next step. That's the the, the after the fact if you're if like, okay we understand that this is fundamentally wrong and it doesn't jive with the free market and then it does really blow the minds and the logical inconsistencies for those that like to be free market capitalists or at least say that in theory without understanding further what that really means that that's kind of the next point but i, I would disagree i think that you could actually profit further from the continued growth of collegiate sports all of them if you made soccer and other traditionally non-revenue, non-big revenue sports, and you put them on TV, you sold their stuff, you promoted it more and more. It, it's not that football all of a sudden was magically profitable. I mean, right, this is a relatively still new thing to make it in the last 40 years, a big time profitable, rev, high revenue thing. You just need to do pump out more selling of the other stuff. I, I mean, I don't disagree, right? I think that we are a highly marketed to society. And I think that in order to market, you need money to market. So where's that marketing money from the soccer, women's soccer gonna come from? Yeah, well, I mean, look at revenue sources. Where does it come from? From, from ticket sales, TV sales, DVD. But you're, you're gonna, yeah. What I'm saying is you're gonna have a disproportionate level yeah. of marketing due yeah. to, and, and, and what I would say, Amer yeah. Yeah. football is America's number one sport because of the reason that you're saying. We market it as America's sport. Cowboys are America's team, right? It's, 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 it's woven into the very fabric of who Americans are, like especially in the South, right? The Southeast, like that's, that's football is America. And so you don't have that with other sports like soccer for the longest is considered like this overseas fancy, like, right? And so in order to market that in a way that is appealing to Americans, like it would take a lot it would take a lot. And I don't think that a women's college team has those funds if we're going off of the revenue that they generate. And, and I, th I think it's a failure of the system in general, right? I, I, I just really do. It, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's, it's the reality of the, yeah. the system that we occupy. It'd be interesting to see if, if you took it more like other sports, though, too, hypothetically, how much influx of new capital, though, would be invested in order to make it profitable. Right. If you open it up and said, "Hey, now y'all can invest in this thing," and now you know somebody uh, and and just like various women's soccer leagues and those types of things, you know, when people have the capital and can invest in it, 
they're going to expect to see a return on that capital. That you're going to invite, and that's why capitalism and competition is desirable because it brings in capital because then they can get a better return on. It. In theory, so yeah. Are you talking about sponsors coming in and giving and, and giving that? Where's this money coming from? This sounds like a great place and I'd like to tap in. I don't understand how you're getting all this money because they where it was before is you had men's football and basketball and they were getting all the money. And, you know, that's why Title IX came around. So where is it? Why? Are, how would this not fall right back into that? This is his model. I'm not sure. I don't. <laughs> I think G's gonna start giving us some money here. You ain't got no money. G's professor salary ain't got no money. Uh, <laughs> I should have. I should have uh, been a fullback or a linebacker, maybe. I mean, the way I see yeah. it, if if athletes are getting paid, it's gonna be the college that's paying them. Are you talking about letting them do, you know, ads and companies taking sure. them on, or what are you what are you talking sure. about? Sure. So, so if you're a free market capitalist, what you're what you're saying is, you allow the market to set the value of each individual athlete, right? And so, what what we don't like to see, or we don't like to say, is that the NCAA is running a billion dollar business. We don't like to say that, but that's exactly what's happening. The only difference is, they are stifling their product from reaping the benefits of of that income. And so, if you open up that Pandora's box of letting them receive income. If 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 the then you're gonna have disparities in 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 individual salaries on the team. Some kids are gonna get sponsors. Some kids are not gonna get sponsors. Same thing that you have in the NFL. Not everybody is a millionaire in the NFL. It is what it. But but we accept that because it's like oh those are grown men and they're doing business. But in the but in college it's like, well you know they're amateurs. Well, if I go, if I'm in high school and I don't have a full ride scholarship and, you know, I go to work a nine to five, I say I go work at Dairy Queen or Burger King or whatever. Well, I have a, I have, I have a paycheck. I can't go, I can't, I can't get what the manager's getting, right? The market set my value. Well, why is it okay for a regular business to set, have their employees set that market value, but it's not okay for an NCAA athlete. It just doesn't make any sense. Logically, it doesn't follow. And so in order to make it make sense, you have to have, you have to make up special rules mm -hmm. that you invented that aren't a real thing in our economy. Yeah. Im imagine coming out, imagine coming out in, in high school and you go, you go to get a job and they're like, we're, we're not going to pay you because you're an amateur worker. You're gonna be like, what? I'm providing a service. This is my labor you're taking. People will be in an uproar. But when it comes to the athletes, for some reason, there's this magical bubble that people don't want to poke. Yeah. Well, I mean, wait, wait, what's the magical bubble, right? You know, power, economics, and 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 I and right now, and then to throw it in there, I would say it's also probably racism. I think that I, I didn't want to say it. Yeah, I, when I said it, right, that we're okay with, and what happens when you start looking at some of the other data, right, is the profitable sports, which tend to be overrepresented by black men, are subsidizing other sports that happen to be overrepresented by white people. I mean, but people don't know that. And then when you say, right, if you say racism nowadays too, it's like, oh my gosh, everybody, now he's calling me a racist. Well, no, the, this is a system that was not like this. I mean, when the incidents, so real quick too, Walter Byers was the person that came up with student athlete in, in, in the book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct. Uh, for those that are listening, I want to read these type of things. Uh, there's another cat, Professor John Thielen, wrote a nice book about collegiate athletes way back in the day. And there's lots of other ones, examples. But 100 plus years ago, collegiate athletes were paid. They were paid at the beginning of sports when they started with crewing and, and there were the rowing teams. 
and they were paid and they were, they were switched teams. Sometimes they had player coaches, but the idea of what we've got nowadays and the, and the amateurism myth that we don't even have with Olympic athletes nowadays has gone except for this. And you have to say it like it is like, what else can it be besides I like power, I like money, and I don't care about what you're saying. And the idea that race doesn't have anything to do with it is it's just historically inaccurate. People hate being called a racist or being accused of, of, of carrying racist biases just to me are just ostriches sticking their head in the sand. And I don't even know if ostriches really do that. It's more of a saying, but beside the point, I think it, it, in order to understand anything in the context of today, you have to understand the history of America and, and the, and the, and the fact that people in today's world refuse to acknowledge the race relations as being an issue in today's world is just, it's just asinine in every walk of life in, in, in the job market, in the criminal justice system, you name it, it's a factor. And it, the, the more and more we hide from it, the more and more it's going to pop up its ugly head because it's here. And it's, and it, until you address it, it's not going anywhere. How many black head coaches did you play for? Not one. Well, how about the ownership? The ownership's <laughs> what, 90%? And the nope. and uh, 90% white, and then the players are 70% black? I mean, it just, how do you yep. not see that? <laughs> well, they'll tell you, I've actually had this conversation where they'll tell you um, it's because the ownership worked hard, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, I got a, I got another question for you. What happens? I'm I'm curious. Okay, so if we pay college athletes, then the richest schools are going to be the winners because they'll be able to afford the best player. So you get you get a school that's going to pay to be the best. And where does it stop? Do you then go to high schools? And doesn't that separate not, even more? Doesn't that yeah. kind of separate segregate everything just that much more? Yeah. Okay, I was just I mean, I, No, I wish I had a fancy <laughs> answer, but that's that's what this system yields is it yields exclusion it's a dog eat dog system and the and the more you accrue the better it is for that system it's a byproduct of capitalism and so and it, is socialism the answer then yes <laughs> it's a short yes really socialism is, is is largely misrepresented socialism is where the workers own the means of production right it's saying it's saying that your labor is worth more than what I pay you because to me that's exploitation, right? It's saying it's the reason why all the products you have are made in China. The re all, the reason all the products you have are made in China is because in order to make them here, it will cost more. And the owners of those companies are saying, I'm not willing to pay that amount for your labor, so I'm gonna outsource it to where I can get my labor the labor cheaper, so I can I can have more revenue on the back end, right? That's that's what ex that's exploitation. You're saying you're saying my labor's my labor's not valuable enough in order for the, to make your product. That's what you're saying. I think what they're exploiting is those poor children in China that are making their things. I, I I'm not sure that they're doing. I that's funny because I would not have said it's because your work's not as good or because you know you're not willing to do this for nothing. I just think you know as a, as you say as a capitalist, that's why football players would get paid and, and women soccer players wouldn't. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an unfortunate byproduct, right? But, but, but basically what it boils down to is we don't value labor in this country and un under the system like we should. If we did, we would give more to the workers. And it's not, this, is, this extends beyond athletics. This goes to regular average nine to five people. If they had more incentive to go work, and there's study after study that proves this, the quality of work will go up. 
the the quality of life in the the environment and the workplace would go up insurmountable effects would take place in in a, in a positive direction but what you have is you have ownership in companies that say it's my product i came up with it i deserve whatever i want and they're not wrong under the system you deserve whatever you want i'm just different right like i like i run a small little podcast and a small i overpay i'm in the red i overpay like they're i'm losing money but i pay them and that i and granted and granted i mean granted and, and and not every that's not a sustainable business model in this system right but to me it's the ethical thing to do if i'm if i'm amazon if i'm apple if i'm walmart i'm overpaying i'm making sure all my employees have health benefits retirement packages 401k's out the roof because how many cars do you need that's what it boils down to dog is how many cars do you need how many houses do you need i i have the privilege of being a very wealthy man Right, I don't ever have to work again for the rest of my life. What I found is that the majority of people that I've bumped elbows with, whether it be in business or professional sports, and like I got, I got a buddy that's worth like six hundred million dollars, right? That I have done business with in the past, and he just continues to grind. And I'm like, why do you do this? And it's just, it's you're programmed. You're just programmed in our society to go, to get more, to gather. It's a mono, it's a monopoly game. It's a thousand percent a monopoly game. And you have the most property and you have the most money and you win. But I just, I don't know if I'm just, I'm just wired like this, or I was able to see both sides. Cause I grew up in section eight housing on, on government cheese, right? I grew up on food stamps and now I'm at the epitome of wealth in America. Well, somewhat, I'm a very wealthy person relatively. And I see both sides and now all I see is exploitation. I understand very well that if you make a lot of money, that's how you keep a lot of money. There's loopholes after loopholes after loopholes that I've taken advantage of and me not knowing that I was taking advantage of the system, right? And once you get there, you realize how skewed the game is. And it's not set up for 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 regular people. Like I, I told my buddy the other day, man, it was like it was like a couple months ago. He, he He's an entrepreneur, he has his own business and he has aspirations to be a millionaire. <clears throat> and I, I was really frank with him. I was like, dog, you're probably not going to be a millionaire. And he was like, why would you say that, man? It was like, it's not a personal slight, but what it is, is it's reality check for the system that you live in. I hope you are. I'm going to do everything in my power to aid that, bro. But the odds are not on your side. It's very hard to do. There's certain things that have to fall in line. Certain people you got to know sometimes. You got to get lucky sometimes. So it's not this, you can do it too. You can't. You can't. It's you, there's things that have to go in place and I'm ranting. Sorry. I was almost, no, you're not, no, you're not. I'm very <laughs> curious about this. So I, I want to go back to, to China. <laughs> I want to go back to China. I want to, so if <laughs> I know who can ever say that word again and not like, okay. okay anyway. <laughs> so I had a brother growing up who was an environmental scientist, but this was back before that was even, you know, a thing wasn't in at the time. And uh, my father was in real estate and he, every, every night for dinner, we, you know, he'd pound the table. Everybody's got to tear down their buildings and put up green buildings, period. End of story. It's the right thing to do. You got to do it. You know, there's just, there's no other question. And I remember thinking, what, what businessman's going to go, you know what I need to do? I need to tear down my building that has been providing my, you know, my company and my family and my workers, all their income and put it all into a green building because it's responsible. 
So when I when I hear about you know we should be paying more to the la- to in the U.S. for labor when China has no la- I mean you're paying nothing to these poor kids I think that's wrong for sure but how do we fix globally that issue if we just end up taking ourselves out of the the equation by paying more and not being competitive on a global scale. So our our competitiveness, like, and why our dollar is worth anything is because of the goods and services we produce. As long as we have goods and services that the world want and need, the U.S. dollar is not going to be devalued in any way, right? So the, the tech world, Silicon Valley is the hub of technology, right? If you, if you do the responsible thing, if you invest in poor neighborhoods education, right? If you invest in education in general, if you invest in green energy, if you invest in these things, what will happen over courses of generation after generation is you'll start to see that the the product of those investments are children that have grown, that understand the world, that understand the economy, that understand the environment, right? And that becomes a valuable asset to your economy. Mm -hmm. It's the simplest thought in the world. But what, what hinders that is the greed of Americans. It's the greed of our society is that I got to go get mine. And I, I say this, and it's, I say this to people all the time. And I know it's hard to hear for people who are working nine to five and are living check to check. And I've been there, right? I know it's hard to hear, but being rich is not the answer. There's a certain amount of money that I will concede that does give you happiness, right? And they, I think it's like $73,000 or something like that. And the reason why it does, it's not because it, it, it's, it's I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the study I'm talking about, Brian. I'm going to need to see some citations. I will, I will, I will. We better put that up there now. So, so it's a certain, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, it's money can't buy happiness, but there's a certain amount that can alleviate a lot of stress. A lot of, stress self, a lot of suffering, they, stress, health, you know, access to healthcare, yes, food, etc., yes, shelter. Yes. Yes. So there is a certain amount of money that can, that can do that. But for the majority of people who are like, man, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be this. The one thing I could, I, t- I say to people all the time is like, dog, if you're not happy with a little, you're not going to be happy with a lot. I promise you. Not only are you not going to be happy with a lot, you're going to be more miserable because all money does is exacerbate and and highlight everything that you are. If you're a giving, loving, kind person, you're gonna be more of a giving, loving, kind person. If you're a piece of trash, you're gonna be a bigger, you're gonna be a bigger piece of trash. And that's that's all it does. And so when we look at our society, it's so profit driven that it, that's that's all we care about. I mean, if you think about it, like like I was having a conversation on Twitter uh, not too long ago where uh, they were like the discussion was when to kick your kids out of the house, right? And we're like, a lot of people, especially in, in, in my community, in the black community, they're like, when you 18, you're on your own, you gotta, get, you gotta get a job. And I'm like, that's so backwards. That's so backwards. Because what we're saying is like, I've done, I've washed my hands of you, and now you gotta go, you gotta go fish on your own. And it's just backwards because we've had just generational curses of trauma, it's basically, it's basically what it is. And so the more empathetic thing to say is if I've taken care of my, myself in a way that I have, and I was lucky, I, I had the right people around me. I had the right support system and not everybody has that, which is a whole nother conversation, but it needs to happen is that when I have kids, they don't have to leave my house until they're ready. until they want to, I'll be 70 years old. You 50. If you still want to stay with pops, that's what's up. Cause I've nurtured a loving relationship. I, I understand what's out there. I understand the shark infested water. So it's like, we don't, we don't even, we don't even cultivate that environment to where 
the offspring that you produce can stay with you. It's it's wild. That's also too. I would say it's a. I think I'm going to say that it's a white capitalistic kind of nature, though, too. Like, right, go out and spread and get your own thing. Whereas other communities too, and and different cultural ethnicities, and it's hard to generalize. So there's a lot of different groups though that having the extended family in the house, not only because it's more expensive that each have your own, but it's because you value having the family and community with you and not dispersed mm -hmm. all over the place. Yep. That's, that's changed yep. as the economy has changed and our ability to leave a certain geographical area has changed too. Yeah, and so, I mean, to, to your point, man, not to cut you off, but like, who lives with me now? Right now I have a, a she hates when I call her baby mother, but the mother, the mother that that bore my daughter, <laughs> I don't know if that's correct, but I have a daughter with a woman and we were together five years, beautiful relationship, but we just, it was time for us to split and we split, right? She still stays with me. And we had a long conversation because I was like, I don't, I don't not enjoy you as a human being. And she doesn't not enjoy me as a human being. I want to be able to wake up and cook my daughter breakfast. She wants to be able to wake up and cook her daughter breakfast. It's like, I've, I've, I'm, a, I'm in the, I'm in the space where it's like, I have a room here. You can stay here if, if you would like. And she was like, I don't see why not. And so we're living our separate lives, but in the same household, it's so abnormal that when we tell people that they'll be like, Whoa, that's a, whole, that's a whole nother show. Yeah. Yeah. Like, y'all good. And it's just like, but it's the same thing. One of my best friends that I, that I played in the league with, he's financially stable. He's good. He don't need none for me. Just one of my brothers. Like I love him to death. Like I, I it's, it just, I feel like my mother had him. Right. He was always over at my house and we were making music together always like every day. And then one day I was like, bro, why don't you just move in? I got a room. And he was like, you want me to move in? I'm like, you always here. You don't brought you don't brought females here like is it you always here bro why, why don't you just move in it moved in and it's like to your point it's such a taboo thing to have people that you love in 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 the space that you occupy because i'm getting mine you should get yours when it's like nah what if we all collectively just put into the pot mm -hmm. and enjoy this life what really changed my mind this is what really changed my mind what really changed my mind was uh, i retired my mother in 2012 called on the phone, I was like, yo, you don't got to work no more. She was crying. It was amazing, right? About a year into it, I was like, so what do you want to try to like pursue? What do you want to do? And she was like, honestly, man, I don't, nothing right now. You know, I've been working in the workforce for 40 years. Like, I just, I just want to relax. I was like, relax, take your time. It's whatever. Two years went by, three years went by, four years went by. And I was like, mom, like, what, is there anything you want to do? And she was like, nah, I, I don't. It's like, is this okay? And I'm like, that's what I retired you for. Do you? Just wake up and do whatever you want to do. And then it finally dawned on me that I, I've been retired for, let's see, 2016. I've been retired for four years, going on five years. I'm, I'm into a million different things. I'm never going to stop working at the things that I love. My mom's been retired for eight, nine years. She don't want to do anything. And that's okay. We demonize wanting to enjoy life because your value as a human being is directly correlated to the value that you give the economy and that is so backwards to us. And, and unless we undo that, that's how we demonize poor people. That's how we demonize the, the, the downtrodden and, and the mis, mis, misfortune in our society. Yeah. It's because, oh, you're not, you're not putting out, bum, that's how we look at it. Does anybody need a middle-aged professor, sport professor to like move in or- no. 
I got an extra room for you, dog. Let's go. <laughs> My rooms are taken. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, it's, it's so great when you look into other cultures and they have kind of the grandparents living with you and it's, it's a much more extended family. It's celebrated. And I think that's part of mental health in general is feeling like we are so individualized and it puts so much pressure on me as an individual instead of being part of something bigger. I totally agree with that. What I don't agree with is in socialism, while in your house and in my house, it works. You get anyone that kind of, that kind of power. I mean, we've seen it a million times. You're going to get the corruption that happens. Socialism on paper looks fantastic. I want mm-hmm. in. You you get somebody who's got to be in charge of something, and the human element corrupts, and it makes it worse. So I'm just not sure that's the answer. I, I'd like to find a C, though. Well, I mean, it's the same thing with capitalism. I mean, you literally have... You can literally define us as an, as an oligarchy if you if you stretch the definition. Literally. you can You can literally say that politicians policies are bought and paid for yeah like like this is like and it's not even like yeah. no conspiracy no stuff it's literally On both like, sides like, yeah i remember i remember at&t gave like millions of dollars to one of trump's administrations just to how does he understand how does he operate how does he work and operate? because they wanted to slide a policy underneath the door and this is documented they admitted it right and so it's it happens on both sides so so, so what i'm so what i'm saying is i would rather have a system that acquiesces to the workers needs than a system that acquiesces to the owners needs private ownership is is ripe for corruption workers needs you'd have to go through a lot more in order to have that system be corrupt and the human element is always going to be present as long as humans are here but this is why we have to have we don't we don't massage a uh an, an environment for our voters to understand what they're voting for at all. No. We have we have an electoral college that's broken. We don't we don't we don't educate all of our kids the exact same with the same amount of resources. And so when you, you're fostering an environment for corruption. Like that's that's literally what you're doing. Like if if, if if I would believe our government has our 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 people's best intentions in mind when we when we when we spend more money on education than we do on bombing people. Thousand percent I would but we don't. Even when we spend, even when the government spends money on education, though, they, it's a swing and a miss. I mean, no child left behind was, I I haven't seen an education program that works yet. And people have spent a lot of money on education. It's just not working. Well, a lot of the time, the programs that they, I'm not talking about programs, right? The programs that they implement, implement a lot of the times are, that's a whole nother conversation. What I'm talking about, what I'm talking about when you fund education is, is don't have edu- uh, public schools funded by property tax. I'm talking about getting kids resources and paying teachers a real livable wage. I, I would disagree that we've ever actually funded. So th- there's a lot of problems with No Child Left Behind. And you can look at like Diana Ravitch, she's a historian of education. There's quite a few educational scholars that have looked at it uh, and its flaws. But what they, when you look at how much we spend, let's say on the military as a percentage of our budget, our slice of education is nowhere near that. So the idea that we have ever funded public education, and you can look at one of the books that I read right back in the day as an education major, uh, education major was Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Colson. 
and it's a short read, but if you ever want to read about what either rural areas, not, you know, having coached and lived in Mississippi or reading about schools in St. Louis and how places are falling apart left and right and teachers after 30 years are still not making more than $50,000 a year. You know, we don't treat education and we never have uh, as a thing. And, and so I, I just- well, so If government has never been able to treat it correctly, why are we handing it back to the government and saying doing better? Why wouldn't we do it better ourselves? It's about the allocation of funds. It's not about, it's not about the, the doing it yourselves. I mean, what would that entail, right? That would entail private companies or private businesses expanding well, at, their philanthropic football league. He's out there doing it right. But it's not education though. But but why wouldn't you want to foster a, a, a society that places a, an emphasis on education? We place an emphasis on entertainment, which is oh, what I you do. just alluded to. No, I, I agree with you hundred percent that we need to change the focus of our of our country. I just not the politicians are going to do it. <laughs> well, 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 it's because they're horrible politicians. But they, but they, so but don't they give them anything. But but they put forth they put forth a lot of the arguments is what you're saying. It's saying, well, we have private things that can we get programs that could, we can fund and yet rather than saying we're allocating these funds to rebuild this school, we are we are changing the mandate on how we pay public teachers. That like that is is saying we care about education. All we care about now is profit. That's all we care about. That's literally all we care about. It's all that matters. Nothing else matters. If it did, we would already have somebody on Mars. I wish that we could do these bills that you're talking about and these programs. I wish we could vote on them individually because by the time it gets to anyone, you know, I, I, I come up with a great idea. Let's, you know, let's get rid of all the guns or let's get rid of, let's put all our money in education. Okay. Well then the next person says, I'll give you that if you give me this. Yeah. And by the time the bill gets there, there isn't any money. Everyone's getting five cents because everyone's taking a piece. Well, and see, and that's where I think we have been bamboozled. We have more than enough money to fund public education at a high level. We have more than enough money. That is a lot of political talking points that they posit. It's not the reality we live in because, I mean, think about it. If we were to get bombed by X country tomorrow, would anybody ask, where are we going to get the money to go to war? No, nobody would ask that. They would find the money. And the reason why they would find the money is because they could print it, period. And so, but when it comes to actually taking care of your citizens, we always come up short and pockets is, is falling out. Why is that? It's because we don't care about people. We don't. We like to say it. We like to, it's a slogan, but we don't do it. When you say we, what, what are you talking about? The politicians? You're talking about the, because I do. I care about education. I care about, so... How yeah. do we, I just want to find about, a solution. I'm talking about 50% of America don't. 50% of politicians don't. So I would say 70% of politicians don't. The solution is elect elect ethical people. That's the solution. Elect ethical I'd people. love to. I would love but, to. When but, was the last time you were excited to vote for somebody? Uh, not in the presidential election, ever. No. Um, but uh, I feel like we have some progressive candidates that are really fighting for people really fighting for people. 
um, and they get demonized under the guise of they're trying to take this, they're trying to take your freedom. They, I mean, this, this is why politics is interwoven with everything. It's because it's it's fear mongering. They think that if you don't abide by this fabricated commandments of our histories, yeah, then you're somehow anti who we are. And I mean, that's rooted in a lot too. There's a lot of variables to unpack as well, but the majority of people have an idea of how this country should go forward because of where it was. And where it was, was founded upon racist and capitalistic ideologies, undeniable. And if we, if we, if we skew from that, then we're somehow anti-American and that's the issue. I guess I wish we'd pay more attention to like actual solutions instead. I just feel like everybody's always, I'm talking about politicians now, obviously, but right. they're just always talking at each other. Nobody, like you said, nobody's listening. It's frustrating. You have, you have bureaucracies. You, ha you literally have lobbyists. You literally have people who are paying politicians to get legislation passed, paying people. Like there isn't a conscious human being that has read any amount of data on climate change that says man isn't aiding the excess heat in the world. There isn't anybody. But what happens is they like to skew it. They like to find the one or two peppered in scientists that say, well, it might not be as bad as they say. It's warming, but it might not be as bad as they say, right? And that's enough to lobby against real change in climate policy. It's the same thing with everything. Schools, it's the same thing with guns. It's the same thing with all of that stuff. It's the exact same thing. This is why like, I went, and this has turned into a political uh, conversation, but I went from, I went from, you said what? <laughs> Football. Yeah, you said we talking about sports. But, 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 it's, but, it, but it's so interwoven and that's what, that's what's, that's what's so amazing to me. It's, it's all interconnected. And, and so when I, when, when, I, when I left the NFL, I really dove into politics. Um, well, I mean, I was always aware. You should run. No. <laughs> no. When I, I dove into politics, uh, I really started at college is what it, what it started. But when I really dove into it, what I realized was you can't understand one thing unless you understand another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing. And then you realize that is, this is all connected in a long story of who we are as Americans. And what's happening now is that the historical narrative is being changed to fit agendas. And the funny thing is, they'll hear me say that, people on the right, and they'll say, that's what y'all are doing. And it's and that's and that's the scary part to bring a full circle of what we started this conversation with is that's the scary part. Is when anybody can say they're doing it wrong and I have evidence on my side. That's where you get into the okay. Where do we go from here? How can we? How can we then move forward? So yeah, we call it in, in some of the stuff that I kind of do. We call it the scientization. You weaponize science to do what you want to. So I think I use this example as a way of showing how evidence, though, is we can hit our natural physical science discussion. I know physiologists, biomechanists that look at research on you know reps and sets and working out, right? You know, and I never wanted to do that stuff, but I was a strength coach, so it was important to know, and. These guys study the research on, you know, glute activity, glute muscle activity. So what that means is butt muscle activity, right? They want to know how to get bigger, tighter, fuller, rounder, baby got back butts. And this is what they do their research on. 
And so next thing you know, they're presenting at conferences, they're writing in journals, they're talking about it. They got, you know, followers on all the social media talking about glute training, glute training, right? And you see it in the media or you see it in the advertisements that you get in the mail. And you're just sitting there, right? This is all science. It's valid research, okay? Yeah. What yeah. the hell for though? Yeah. What are we doing this for? This is not necessarily like I get a nice firm round butt. Look, I get it. Come on. Get you some squats. Is it I, I like it. <laughs> I like it. I'm not trying to hate on the bus, but what are we doing? Like we're out of our minds. <laughs> and that's scientization. We're we're weaponizing the science. And and you asked me about so like I looked up the again the, the modern monetary theory. You look at economics, and I agree with you that democracy, I just recently read a thing or was reminded democracy does not work when the people are not educated and socrates yeah socrates yeah. socrates socrates he, he he did not like democracy for that exact reason he said if you have a, i'm sorry to cut you off the wine is flowing but socrates said if if you have a public that is uneducated and they are responsible for electing officials what does that leave you you're a product of your environment this is what you curated and so that's exactly what we're seeing. And this is why when, when I know I'm going to lose some of your listeners, but when Donald Trump was elected, I was like, yo, this is exactly what America deserved. Because if you look at what we value as a society, we, we, we value money and he's a alleged billionaire. We value fame. He's a TV star, right? And we value bravado. These are all the things as Americans that we value. This is a, this is a, this is encompassing of what who and what we are as Americans. I'm like, this is what you wanted. Why is reality not- TV so so popular? 100%. Kim Kardashian is one of the most famous human beings on earth, and all she does is exist, and they film it. And it's not to detract from her as a human being. You know, like I think she's done some good things in business. But what I'm saying is, what we value. Wh- why do we not value? Like like I'm a huge fan of Einstein. Like I'm a huge fan of Einstein. Like I love him. I've studied him. I've read, like, I love Einstein. Why is, why are, aren't our heroes modern day, those, the scientists, why aren't our heroes modern day artists, right? Like, why do we, it's, it's the reason why, like, I don't know if you heard, there's an article about Spotify. Spotify was talking about, ban, not, not banning. I don't want to misrepresent them, but they were talking about disincentivizing artists that don't put out projects within four years. So you have to put out one at least four years or I think they take away your listeners or whatever the case may be, you have to resubmit. And what you're then doing is you're saying, as an artist, you're not generating enough for us or to the capacity that we deem necessary. So you have to create underneath our umbrella. That is the opposite of what art should be. I should be able to create as an artist whenever and however I see fit. And the people that 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 give to my or, or that 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 feed from my art can appreciate that. But you're curating it and you're manipulating it. And that's what money does to arts, and it's what money does to science. And those are the two things. If you look at any culture in history, any culture, Mayans, Egyptians, any culture in Africa, any of them, what are the two things that we take? from cultures after they're done. We take their arts and we take their sciences and we study those. That's it. So those are the two most important things and we devalue them the most in our society because of profit. It's insane. I'm waiting for G to bring this back to sports somehow. Well, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, it's already. I mean, I just appreciate Kim Kardashian and, and her support, her support of NFL <laughs> running backs. It's funny we were talking about butts, <laughs> and now we're back to Kardashian. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm sensing a theme with you boys. <laughs> I don't, I don't. I mean, that is not my style. Hey, the, the fabrication of the glutes is not my thing. I yeah, why work that. out, right? Stuff <laughs> exactly. something in there. <laughs> There's, yeah. there's a famous line in rap that said, if the thighs don't match, it ain't legit. <laughs> well, I'm nerding out because I was like, right there. I, I watched the Einstein uh, special. I think it was on PBS. It was actually- yeah. Nova? It was yeah. good. It was yeah, terrific, too. It, um, but yeah, I mean, people are somewhat, somewhat aware of that we have a lot of celebrities or a lot of lack of substance celebrities in the, in the spotlight. And, and we need to have, and, right, and that's why we got you in the spotlight here is to shine a light on uh, a public intellectual that has used the leverage of sport and then beyond that has grown way beyond sport and, and is an artist in that regard. And I wanted to ask you too, if, 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 are you aware of, are you, have you heard of Cornell West and Trisha Rose's podcast, The Tightrope? Bro, okay. I mean, yes, to answer your question. Cornell West is my favorite human being that is walking this planet. I think he is the most brilliant mind on this planet unbelievable mind i'm sorry go ahead no you know i'm just right with your with your interest in sports and being a public intellectual and and music and art and and, and hip-hop i mean and that's what trisha rose specializes in that you know you gotta we gotta get you i mean i'm like i'm talking like i'm gonna get you on that show like i can do it hey give me give, give me on <laughs> cornell too cornell and other philosophers like that too and, and mine mine that i was introduced to in grad school too was maxine green you know, a philosopher of education too, that was like, when you read her work, she's an existentialist, it, it, tremendous because the way that you can weave in art and scholarship and observation with everyday life speaks to people. And that's what the arts do. And the arts don't want to, we don't want the arts because the arts makes you critical. The arts makes you think. The arts makes you wonder. That was an epiphany that I had probably, it wasn't too long ago, it was like maybe two, three years ago that how important art is to a culture. I wasn't, I was like, a lot of them are kooks. Like they just kind of yeah. trying to get the, whatever. It really, it didn't dawn on me until I really started pondering my own relationships. And so to go off on a tangent, but it's right on point with what you're talking about is I started thinking about why, why am I in a relationship? Why, why am I in a monogamous relationship? I'm in a monogamous relationship because that's what has been marketed to me since I was a child is you grow up and you marry somebody, you fall in love and yada, 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 right? And on a deeper level, how we think about love, think about it. I love you, bro. I love you. You know, we, we share the time and period. I love you. I don't love you like I love my mother. I don't love my mother like I love my dog. I don't love my dog like I love my best friend. I don't love my best friend like I love one of my lovers, right? Why do we have one word for all these different feelings and emotions? It makes no sense. What we've done, Think about Romeo and Juliet, Beauty and the Beast, all these, these, these artistic expressions of love stories. They have been marketed to us and they, they are personified in how, we, in how we love. Not only that, they, they, they infiltrate, and that's a, that's a tough adjective to use, but they infiltrate our expectations of love. If you are in a relationship and you have an expectation of how you love or how you want to be loved, 
you are a victim of the marketing of love. 100%. And so I had to really recalibrate, okay, like, why do I love? Why do I love this person? And why do I feel like there's this sense of ownership? Like I own this person. Who are you talking to? Where are you going? Who are you with? Tell me what you, tell me what's going on. I don't, that's none of my business, bro. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. But what I'm saying is the arts have directly influenced something as integral and as personal as love because of how we're marketing to it. Not only that, if you look at things like, and it's changing now dramatically, but if you look at things like The Birth of a Nation, it's an old film back in the, what was it, 1900s, early 1900s. It was propaganda about how black folks are violent, they're murderous, they're savages, right? Uh, blackface. It's why blackface is so disrespectful now. It's because it was it was part of minstrel shows and how black people were just goofies. They were just they were just goofy. They were just they weren't used to, of anything else other than the comic relief. Even to this day, you'll have a lot of like rom coms or you'll have a lot of these movies where there's a black the black girlfriends like girl you better get rid of that man right. It comes from the same lineage from that. And I say all that to say art has and does directly affect the zeitgeist of who we are as a society. And that's why it dawned on me how important art is and why it's so important that we let it be free. And we try to unshackle it from monetization because it's, it's killing it. It's killing it and it's curated in a way that is detrimental to the evolution of who we are as a species. We talked about it on, uh, with hip hop with Snoop is that when the, you know, the, the, the powers that be start to take over and start to tell you how to do your art or how to do your songs, or you need to do more of these types of things, you know, cause this is going to sell and this is going to be a success and we can market it this way. You know, you lose your authenticity and you lose your ability to speak truth to power and, and do your thing and explore that creativity. Is, is anybody seeking you out? How, how are you? I'm wondering if you're an advisor. Hope not. <laughs> no, I mean, like in terms of, Hope not, bro. Of, of, of being that, you know, there's another philosopher, Foucault, that talks about, and others before him talked about, I think it's pronounced perhesia, you know, the speak, truth speaking, truth telling, right? You, you, you are quite frank. I think you speak what you're, is on your mind. You're not uh, loose lips. You're not just spouting off whatever. I think that's probably what got you into trouble in times in college and myself included, right? You just say the first thing that pops in there and you're like, eh. but is anybody seeking you out or how do you advise other is it former athletes, colleagues, friends, you know, people that are like, man, you, you've been able to hold your stuff together. You've been doing a great job and doing all these things. You know, how are you able to do that sort of thing? What kind of, I, I mean, do, do athletes seek you out at all for that? Not really, man. <laughs> I think, I think I was kind of marketed as this, like, a weirdo right like this dude's weird like i had plenty of people coming to me it's like damn i thought you was like i thought you was like a weirdo bro like you kind of deep right and i mean that's subjective right that's what they feel but i think in, i think in general academia or intelligentsia they look at me like a former athlete right and former athletes look at me like oh you want to be you trying to be right and so i'm caught in this purgatory of labels and I think that's only gonna come. I, I think if I, like like say I had people respect pedigree more than they do 
anything else. And so like, say, say I went back to school and got a PhD in whatever, then I would then be, okay, maybe he, maybe he knows what he's talking about. And I think it's a bit elitist, but I understand it. Right. Because if, if you're, if you don't have a bearing on, or like a, or, or yeah, if you don't have a bearing on understanding if somebody is, is speaking to you from a place of knowledge and, and understanding whether then somebody's just talking, if you don't have that filter, then it all sounds the same to you. And I think I exist in that space to a lot of people. And it's not, I'm just not begrudgingly. I'm just not like I'm like bitter or anything like that. It's just, I, I've, I've been, I feel like I've been like that. Like when I was in, in the locker rooms, I'm like, yo, there's a deeper issue that none of us are tapping in. And they're like, dog, like, I just want to play ball. Right. And it's not to speak to them. That's just what they focus was on. And it's just, I feel like that in society, honestly. So I'm speaking to a deeper issue and they're like, I just want to pay my bills. Or I just want to go to the gang or, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of the same thing, but they'll never view me as maybe when I'm dead, <laughs> but they'll never view me as anybody of any kind of like uh, intellectual relevancy, unless I have some kind of pedigree other than uh, what I did for a living. Yeah. You're trying to be the bourgeoisie. The, the, yeah. the, the difference is right. Is that cultural capital or that family wealth, yeah, careful with that lingo brother <laughs> <laughs> they uh but i mean right the example in football right that people will share all the time is is myron roll right myron roll now because he's a doctor you know he's an he's a yeah he's got that right but he and, he and he made his way up you know the ranks but if you don't have that then you might feel like an imposter you know and it's hard to find out and carve out your name and be who you are and authentic to what you want to be and, and not be caught between those different I'll call them tropes, you know, of, of I th- yeah, a thousand percent. But I think I think the the mold is changing where it is of like there isn't a book and a course that you can give as a, as your curriculum that I can't get online. Right. And so what I've done is I've realized that the things that I love to study, like there is a process that you have to go through. And so I've put myself through that process rather than going through it formally in college. That will never be respected as having that pedigree of I did this. And so I've read the people that you talk about in this. I've read Cornell West. I've read Socrates. I've read all the, I've read, I've read these people and I understand what they're saying and I understand the points that they got to, right? But that will never be respected as a university. A, I mean, if you want to get into the deeper, a, yeah, a, 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 a traditionally white university degree that says, I know what I'm talking about. And until, until that, that, that mold is broken, and this is why education should be free. Why are you hoarding knowledge for financial gain? It's insanity. Would you not want your society the smartest that they can be? What are we talking about? Why is this even a conversation? I want, like, I want my kids to be as smart as possible. That's like me, man. Yo, you got to go do your work before you can read this book. What? You're a villain. Nah, I want you out in the yard doing that work, not getting smart or un- expanding yourself <laughs> in other ways. So I can make that so I can get, make, I can get paid off you working in the yard. 100%. 100%. I don't need you thinking about how you can be an owner. 100%. And I, 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 I'm, I don't think, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in the way I think that there's, 17 evil white men in a round table saying this is how we're going to screw society right i don't think that i think that it's just a perpetual system that over time 
has rewarded capital over anything else. You know what I think is so great about not uh, learning these things outside of those kind of programs is that there's so much, I could just tell, even as you were explaining it, there's so much reflection that goes on when you go through, when you go through it yourself. And I think that having that creativity in it as well as without going through lesson by lesson by lesson, I liked it better. No, I, I think it's, I, th I definitely think it's important, but there, there are some fields where you need mentorship, yeah. no question. And so there, there's a lot, like, I, I'll be lying if I said I went through this journey by myself. Like my sister has a master's in Africana studies, right? And so when I got to the point in, in history and black history in America, I could read all the books I want to, but giving a, a perspective for somebody who studied this formally helped tremendously, yeah. right? And granted, we came to a lot of the same conclusions beforehand, but when I talked to her, I got a little deeper understanding. And so it's not to begrudge people that, that have, given their life to this and teach this for a living. That's not, that's not what I'm, what I mean. But what I mean is the fact that you hoard information for profit is the issue. Right. And so I don't, I don't think, um, and, and this may be skewed as arrogant, but it's just my observation from my life's experiences is that I'm not normal. I'm not a regular human being in where I just exist. A lot of people just, and I'm not saying that's a bad or a good thing. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is I've always had a unique talent and ability to seek information, to seek accurate information and to siphon a lot of pertinent info that has been validated. Right. And so like, I, I'm, I'm able to see through that. And the reason why is because I think uh, my background in philosophy, I studied philosophy in college and critical thinking is a huge aspect of that. And so I critically think about everything. And so I'm okay with saying, no, I was wrong. Uh, I messed that up. Uh, yeah, no, no, I was wrong about that. I misspoke. No, no, I don't, there's no ego involved in my pursuit. And that's the biggest thing is that you attach your self-worth or dignity or pride or whatever the case may be. You attach that to your identity. And that's the dangerous part. And, and for whatever reason, I've been able to avoid those landmines. And now it's like, I argue from a place of, it's almost altruism. Well, it's like almost, it's almost altruism where it's like, I don't have, I don't really have a stake in it. Like I argue in a place like, like, think about it. Me voting for Trump would be beneficial for me, right? Me, me being a Republican would be so beneficial to me fiscally, thousand percent. But I understand as a whole, how it's detrimental to a society. Like I get that. Why would I, why would I do that other than like voting against my own self-interest in order to help a people? Because I've been on both sides, right? I have a very unique perspective in America from being black, wealthy, athletic, dabbling in academics. I have a very unique perspective. And so it's, it's important that I express that, but, it, but also it's important that I continue this journey. Cause who knows, I might look back at this podcast in 10 years, like I said earlier, and be like, what the hell were you talking about, bro? Oh my God, that's bullshit. When you, when you, when you told me years ago, you're going to be an astrophysicist. I said, what the hell are you talking about? I wanted, and I still want to be, but what I've found out my brother, that's that old saying, you can't, you can't serve two masters. I'm in love with my art. Like I love it. It's something that I will not be able to live without. And so while I'm continually making music and putting things out and doing things that I can only give so much time to be an astrophysicist, you have to, you have to put that time 
into being an astrophysicist. You have to go learn the mathematics. You have to go learn the physics. You have to learn all of that stuff on a level that I can, I can explain to you why Einstein's equations are accurate. I can't explain to you mathematically why that's the case. And in order to understand math, because E equal MC squared is a long equation. You have to unpack it, right? Those, those symbols mean something else. And so I understand the, I understand it, but I don't understand it on the, on the level that I could explain to a mathematician. And that's the difference is until I have the time to do that and, and love it like I do something else, mm. I'm not gonna be able to do that. And I would be doing myself a disservice and I would be doing physics a disservice because I believe that is a, a field that has, no, I know that's a field that has changed our lives dramatically. The reason why we're even talking is because our study of the physics. Yeah, I was just thought it was odd for, you know, as, as somebody who studied philosophy, but then seemed so interested in society and connecting with people to go into astrophysicism. astrophysicism. Well, I think astroph astrophysics. Um, I think, well, I think if you look at a lot, cause my, my stepfather's a geneticist, PhD geneticist, right? And we've had a lot of talks. He frowned on philosophy when I was in college and he was like, oh, it's just like pseudoscience almost. You go work at Starbucks when you're done. Right. I mean, it was, a, it was a joke amongst my peers. And one time we were playing, who were we playing? We were playing somebody dog. And before the, before the game, they like interview like the, the star players. And they're like, you know, what's your, what's your major? What do you want to do? And I told them my major is philosophy. And they're like, what do you want to do with it? And I was like, you can't do anything with a philosophy degree. I mean, I'm not going to open a philosophy shop. And then on, and then on, on camera the next day in the game, he goes, he said he wants to open a philosophy shop. And I'm like, bro, why would you say that, bro? But, anyway, but when you study philosophy, what you realize is it was the substrate for science. It was the it was the beginning of science, and and that's not to discredit any African philosophers or anything else, but like written down knowledge that we're taught. I don't even care who did it, right? But written down knowledge that we're taught, right? Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess his name up. Ibn Al Ahamin or something like that. He's the one who that was responsible for the scientific method. He was an Arab. And he, he did a, a lot for science. Our Greek philosophers really sitting around drinking wine and saying, what is, what is light? What is, what is this thing? What is it? Rather than just be like, that's bright. Like, what is it? Like, what is it? And asking those simple questions. And a lot of philosophy is just that. What is love? Like, what is it? What is what is what where do we live all of these simple questions have monumentally important outcomes and that's what i learned about philosophy and that's all science is is taking philosophical questions and putting them into a a formula that can be validated and certified and saying light is this and now we kind of know and we still don't 100% know but we kind of know what light is we can manipulate the elements that we see. And that investigation into the natural world stemmed from philosophy, asking questions. And so that's why I fell in love with philosophy when I was, because uh, you remember Fernandez? Yeah. So when I, when I was a freshman, I walked into his office. That was, that was our academic uh, guidance counselor, right? I walked into his office and I was like, I want to study astrophysics. And he was like, ooh, I don't think we're going to do that. And I'm like, why not? He's like, he's like, because it conflicts with your football schedule. And I was like, what? 
He's like, yeah. So, I mean, imagine a 17 year old walking to the office, like disheartened because like, I can't study what I wanted to study in college, but I was like, all right, it is what it is. So like for two years, I just didn't find anything I wanted. And finally I had a philosophy class with this cat named uncle Phil. He made a call us, he made us call him uncle Phil. Cool dude. And he presented, he presented philosophy in a way that was so unique. And he had everybody wear name tags. It was really like, it was very unique. And I fell in love with philosophy and, I, and just researching it and understanding it and reading it changed my vantage point. Um, and really let me fall in love with the beginnings of science. But you got that great free degree and you were able to get well, a quality <laughs> education in anything you wanted. <laughs> That's what they say, man. And I was like, cause like, I'll say, I'll say that. I was like, yo, I wasn't able to study astrophysics. And they'll always say Josh Dobbs, like Tennessee people that hate me, they'll be like, Josh Dobbs was a, some kind of astronaut engineer. I don't even know what he did, but he did something crazy. And I'm like, that's what's up. They told me no. What do you want me to say? I don't <laughs> like they told me no. Like, what do you want yeah, me to say? Yeah, they told my daughter no too. She wanted to be yeah. natural physicist and she's she 100%. Had... Like it happens, it happens all the time. So like they'll have they'll have these outliers will be like, well, I was able to do this. Like, um, you remember uh Adam Myers White? That's the sadder part of like reaching like the pinnacle of your profession is like seeing everybody that didn't make it and seeing what came of them. A lot of cats are like really proud of them. And a lot of cats is like, not only struggling financially, that to me, that's a, a minute point, but it's important, but it's minute. They're struggling emotionally. They're struggling mentally because football was their identity. And, 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 and when that stripped from you, it's like, what am I? Who am I? I'm, I'm like, and, and seeing that in real time and seeing people struggle from that is so tough. It's not, it's not an easy pill to swallow. I and mean, I know it's tough for them. So it's like seeing that kind of like dichotomy from cats who are doing well and who aren't, it's, it's tough. I mean, that's the power of, of role models. And I mean, you talk about being weird or abnormal, which I like. That's one of the things that kind of I study a little bit too is, is the naming of things and what's normal, abnormal. But I think it's great to see, right, <clears throat> athletes. I mean, I don't want to say the, the, the worst student athlete. Uh, because of because of the concoction of how it's been created but athletes or former students that you know have multiple identities and they have multiple skills and can navigate a variety of things in life and and they're not into you just have to be an athlete obey us do what we tell you to you know and coaches then or other people around them that send that message of this is everything you have to be 100 percent only this all this all the time there's no possible way you can handle this and anything else with yourself. So just be the running back or just be the whatever. Yep. yep. It happens all the time. And I really, I mean, it's why, it's, it's why like a like critical thing in, a, in like in philosophy, you learn logical fallacies, right? And in logical fallacies to me are one of the most important things in dialogue with human beings in general, because what it's basically saying is the conclusion that you got to may be accurate, but the methodology that you used is not a reliable one in order to get any kind of true statement from, right? And so a lot of the, the logical fallacies that people use against athletes or ex-athletes is dumb jock, or they, they name call, which is called, it's an ad hominem, right? You're attacking the human being and his prowess rather than his argument, attack the argument. And so these are the kinds of things that, I mean, really it, is, it, 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 it extends past athletics. It goes to political discourse. Like if you look on Twitter, Twitter is, 
if you eliminated ad hominems on Twitter, you might get rid of half the tweets of all time. <laughs> but that's where we're at, right? When you don't have the facts or the argument, you pound the desk. Mm -hmm. Yes, you, a thousand percent. You know, you, one of the things we like to do at the end too is to talk about a coach story. And, and so bringing it back to sport and coaching and thinking about door that you'd like to share with folks. Okay. All right. That's, that's all right. So there was a certain coach I won't name him cause I'm tired of the Tennessee drama, but there was a certain coach. Uh, when I came out of high school, I came from Tennessee, from California. California is a very liberal place. It's very loose. You talk to adults, how I grew up was like, you address them, however you address them. Right. There was no sir or ma'am or whatever that case. That was new to me. So when I came to Tennessee, there was a coach that how it started was there's a atmosphere in coaching where if you yell at a kid, you mother, mm, 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 that's like discipline, it's tough love or whatever. I always looked at it like, why do you feel like you can disrespect me on this grass? But if we was like outside walking or whatever and we were strangers and you said that, you know I'd rough you up. And you wouldn't say that, but like in the confines of this grass, like you feel like that's okay. Like, why is that the case? I always felt like that. And so it started with a subtle, like yelling at me. And I'm like, I used to say like, you don't got to do that. Just tell me what you want me to do. I'll do it and we'll move on. Like I'm very coachable. Just you, that, that I'm not, I'm not with that. That slowly morphed into, oh, he's mouthy. And I'm like, okay, I'm mouthy because I don't like to be disrespected as a man, right? As a young man. At the time, I thought I was a man, but as a young man. And so one time he's, he's, he's chirping at me and I didn't hear him. And he goes, he says something and I go, I go, huh? And he goes, huh? 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 You go, you, you gonna tell me, huh? He's doing all this so animated. I'm like, bro, he's on drugs. Like, that's what I'm thinking in my head. Like, he's on drugs. Like, what is wrong with, what is wrong with us? And he's like, huh? Oh, that's it. I'm I'm through with you. I'm going to the head coach. Either you're out of here or I'm out of here. I can't take it anymore. And I'm sitting there like, yo, he's drunk. There's no way he's not drunk. What just happened? And then one of his position coaches or position players that, that was under him comes like, hey, he said, yo, what happened? And I was like, bro, I have no idea. He asked me something. I didn't hear him. I said, huh? And he went off. And he was like, oh, you can't say huh. I'm like, what? I was like, what do you mean? I was like, what do you mean you can't say huh? He's like, oh yeah, you can't say huh, man. He's like, if you don't hear it, you have to say sir. And I'm like, man, what kind of slave shit? Sorry, what kind of slave, what kind of slave stuff is that, bro? That's ridiculous. And he was like, yeah, yeah, man, you can't, you gotta, you gotta answer with sir. Or I'm like, I'm not doing that. Like that's weird to me. Like you have to say sir. Like it's the weird. It's, it's a culture. It was a cultural difference. And to me, was a was a was a, a glaring fact about how some kids cannot be reached with those methods like I grew up in the inner city and it was like you got the respect that you gave that's how I grew up and a lot of cats felt like that and I noticed a lot of cats like I remember you remember well I don't want to call him out <laughs> but there was a there was a big left tackle from Salmore yeah I know this one he he used to he used to cuss he used to cuss everybody out but they never said anything to his face because they feared they they feared him, they feared him. And what I realized was that's how they rule. They rule on fear. They didn't fear me, and so they talked however they wanted to until I said, "Nah." 
Then it wasn't, they still didn't fear me because they didn't, they knew I wouldn't hit them. They really thought he would hit them. <laughs> they knew I wouldn't hit them. And so then they, they labeled me uncoachable. They labeled me a troublemaker. They, and, and be just, just because I was like, don't talk to me like that. Have a little respect when you talk to me. I just stood my ground. Right. And so that's when I realized the dichotomy in, in sports was very funny. It didn't, there was the Venn diagram with manhood didn't really intersect. It's, it's a particular type of masculinity. It's what, you know, we would call it hegemonic masculinity. Nowadays, people might call it toxic masculinity as the, as the kind of slang of it. Mm -hmm. But it's that it's not about you. It's they want you to fear them. Right. And you rule by obedience and yep. this whole sort of thing and that kind of thing. You're, you're the, thousand percent. And this is why when people juxtapose slavery to college athletes, there's an element of it that's true. Mm -hmm. Like I, I understand putting it in a juxtaposition in a way that's like, bro, it's not slavery. I do understand and respecting the ancestors and what they went through. But that element of ruling by fear and ruling by the whip and the whip is your economic future. That is true. And, and they use that against you as a cudgel. And it's, it's sad and they'll never sit down and reason with you. Never. I mean, even in the pros, like they, they're, they're less likely to yell at you and stuff like that. Cause there's like, bro, I'm making more money than you. Like it is what it is, but they'll say stuff to you and they'll, and you can say stuff back in the league. Right. But they'll never see you as equal. And that's the issue is they never look at you as an equal part. Like I always tell my brother, my brother ran a, a, a training facility out here in Houston for a while. And he had employees. And I always used to tell him, if you, you want your employees to feel like they're working with you, not for you, it's a very big distinction. That changes work environment. When we're working with each other for a goal, they'll go to the, they'll go to the end of the earth for you because it's not just you, it's us. But if they're working for you, I'm only gonna give him what he give me. And that's a, that's a big distinction. That, um, that, 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 that real quick, that left tackle was six, about six foot seven, 350, huge, 60 huge. pounds. We quick. A, I remember, I remember we did the body composition and he was 280 pounds of muscle, which was the most muscle we had ever had quick, on any though. player. And, and he had hands too. Oh yeah. He, and he had a temper too, but he, uh, now Adrian, you didn't know this one one time. Cause right. I'm a little bit different <laughs> and I play, I play D three ball and, and I'm, I'm only five. I'm a lot different, but five foot 10, 205 pounds. Right. But this cat, this guy, right. Was in the weight room. He was in there one day and I just kind of smiled and I'm like an idiot. Right. Like just kind of gave him like this crazy kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. Really. I'm a crazy dude. Smile. Right. Like, <laughs> and I looked up at him right? and I said, you know what, if I were out of practice, I'd kick your ass the first day of practice. And he just kind of looked at me like, yeah, right, you, you little, you know, I'll flick you and be done with you. And I just kind of looked at him and just kept on giving that creepy smile. <laughs> we were cool we were cool but yeah, they, they, yeah they no, no question yeah no question so i don't want to leave you with a negative sour tapes in your mouth so uh, a good coaching point a good coaching point is built off of a bad coaching point was when i was undrafted in the nfl my coach is gary kubiak and gary kubiak was he told you what he felt and so when i was undrafted we were going through that uh that summer training camp he treated me like dog dookie like I was just another cat on the, on the roster but he recognized that I had some kind I said something to me and so they used to tell me he's like yo if he's talking to you if he's talking stuff to you that means he likes you and so he would talk stuff to me all the time all the time 
and he would say stuff to me. I was like, yo, there's no way this dude likes me. He's always talking ish. He's always talking stuff. And so he would just constantly be on my case, constantly, constantly, constantly. And 2010 came around. 2010 was like my breakout year. It was when the very first game I ran for like 230 yards against the Colts who were our arch nemesis. They had Peyton Manning, a Tennessee folk hero, right? And I scored like three touchdowns, like dominated the game, amazing game. Was, like I cried after the game because it was like, like imagine your dream being snatched from you and then you work your way up to the point where you earned it back. It's, it was a very emotional moment for me and my family. And so that year I just, I was on a tear after one of the games and, and, to the, and, and the entire time he was hard on me. I'm, I'm talking about, like I missed a, I, I was late for a meeting cause I was up drinking late one night, enjoying my NFL life. I missed a meeting and he sat me the first half of the game. And like the media was like, why would you sit the league's leading rusher during the game? Ended up with like 160 yards. I don't know how many yards I had. A hundred, a whole bunch of yards. Killed it all in the second half. About two or three games later. I mean, we didn't really have a good rapport because all I remember was like, yo, this dude loves talking stuff to me. He came up to me about midway through the season. He realized I was a dog. He realized I was, I was nice. And he came up to me and said, hey, say, man. It was after one game. He said, hey, man. He said, if you listen to me and you do the thing that you're supposed to do, I have another running back that reminds me just of you. And he just went into the Hall of Fame. And he was talking about Terrell Davis. And he was like, he said, that could be you. Keep doing what you're doing. And to me, that was like the tough love that collegiate coaches wanted to do because what he did was he was browbeat me all the time but he always had my back in meetings and i found out subsequently that he always had my back it's like no he's the one no he's the one like my running back can't like after i retired like i hear all these stories about how coaches he's like no 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 he's the one like it's a good kid he's a good kid and he was like browbeating me but he was doing it to try to try to urge me in the right direction and scare me i mean it's not the best way to do me, right? But like, it's, it was his way. And so when he, but after that moment, we had no more riffs and it was all love from them. And I, I talked to him a lot of the times. I was like, yo, you changed my life. Like you literally changed my life because I was, a, I was able to retire my mother because you believed in me. I was able to do these things for my mother because you believed in me. Like that is powerful. And to me, that's what coaching should be. It's like love expressed in a way that is understood and it's not just one way and so that's my good coaching story yeah it's the, it's the, it's the thing you got to build them back up you got to have some love too you know you talked about it yeah. earlier too and and you know meg realized it too and she knows it from from working with me and and i love my students i love my athletes i love all my guys that I come into touch with contact with yeah i mean that's that's why we uh uh, after all these years, man, I have a good rapport. It's because, like, although we might have went at it, but it was just like, you know, I could just, I could just tell you cared. You know, it's, 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 there's not a lot of people that care in that atmosphere. He tries to hide that heart, but uh, it's there. <laughs> no, no, never. I'm trying to think. I never got after it too many. Like, I just, I, you know, I just, you know, for me, I went well, not to make it about me, but. One, I just don't, I, you know, everything that I would read about coaching or in like the, 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 the type of person you wanted to be as a coach, you didn't have to just browbeat people all the time. I mean, you got to pick them up and you got to 
put a put an arm around him or you got to talk to him about things too um but i just never i never liked that too when i was playing you know i didn't like coaches that were sarcastic and trying to be funny and comedians or just trying to be mean spirited to you you didn't have to do it like that and, and when you look at people that you hold in high regard like push me but also you know you're gonna pick me back up and give me a hug you know yeah so it's good it's good leadership man it's, yeah, and, it, yeah. and to me i was like i would be a great coach dog uh, because I understand well, I mean, I'm just saying that because like one, I understand the game and like, I understand a lot of, for a couple of different reasons, let me tell you real quick. I'm going on my little tangent. There is so much tradition in football that they don't understand. They're just now starting. To, if you see how they're starting to use running backs in the NFL, yeah. they're starting to spread them out. Why are they starting to spread them out? Because they're realizing that when you match them up against linebackers, you cannot guard. Like they're just not the same athlete caliber wise. And so I used to say that at Tennessee, I used to say that in the NFL before they started lining me up, I was like, yo, they can't guard me. They cannot guard me. And so what, what, the, what the NFL doesn't understand, what the coaches in general doesn't understand is like they fall in love with systems. This is what I learned. This is what works. Rather than saying, what's my personnel? This is what Bill Belichick is great at. What's my personnel? What do they do best? Let's go with that. And they adapt. And coaches don't understand that. This is why this, that's, that's why there's a, a coaching carousel. Is because you learn from a coach. You have a certain system. This is the way it's done. And after a while, you realize, oh, it's not working anymore. It's because you don't have the personnel for that system. So you have to be a coach. You have to adapt. You have to say, what do I have? Who does what best? Go to the running back. Say, what's your favorite run play? Go to the quarterback. What routes are you comfortable with throwing? Go to the receiver. What routes are you comfortable with running? Cultivate your system around that because football has a culture of this is the way it's done. This is how we do it. This is us. This is it. But the way that they if talk, go, the, the way that they talk to our athletes or the players, right, is also how they talk to each other or the fear that happens in the meeting rooms, the video rooms. You're not sitting there like, you know, like you're talking about artists. Hey, let's be creative today and come up with some different plays and scripts and really disrupt this. Like, mm -hmm. no, it's, this is the way, this is the, you know, no it, input the reps, the sets. This is the pre-practice practice. Like, that's why every practice looks the damn exact same. Bro, point K, <clears throat> two, two, two points. Yeah. I was, when I was, I was a training camp. I was like year six, year five, year six. And I, was, I, I used to tell my running back coach, I was like, dog, cause like you go to individuals, right. And you go to team and you go to nine on seven, whatever. And I'm like, dog, it will be more beneficial for every running back here, if we had one period where we just sat down and stretched and we just took care of our bodies and we just relaxed, nope, we gotta run these drills. And I'm like, dog, you don't understand how this is taxing on us. And so that's how they think. They don't think like what's most beneficial. And this is what you uh, would come in great. You, it would be very beneficial for your knowledge, which is that understanding that the majority of sports leagues do not place any emphasis on sports science. None. Very, very little. Talking about the anatomy of the body, hydration. If, if we understood sports science, we wouldn't have practices like we would have. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm a coach, we maybe practice one day a week. And it's very light. Walkthroughs. Other, other thing, spend the entire time in a meeting room, going over questions, going over plays, and taking care of your body. That's it. Because I used to tell, I used to tell my office coordinator all the time. I was like, dog, 
I can get the playbook the day before the game and not miss an assignment. I promise you, I could. And I may be anomaly in that sense, but the majority of cats is like, it's not, it's not, it's not rocket science, dog. He does this, I do this. You call this, he does this, I do this. It's not hard stuff. The majority of the time is, is just spent because that's what the tradition says. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. The other point, I had another point. I'm a bottle in. Is it, it is what it is. There's a, there's a coach in D3. Uh, he was retired now, but John Gagligardi, I believe is pronounced his last name, but he was famous in Division Three up in, I think, St. John or something in, in Minnesota, but they didn't hit. They didn't hit a lot, hardly at all at practice. And they won, you know, like tons of hundreds of games. He's one of the most winning Division Three coaches, but you don't hear about that. I think that's Probably because of the spectacle too of we'd like to see people run. You know, you got to do the Oklahoma drill, which is worthless. Yep, horrible. You know, and you got to do all these things just because we like the spectacle of violence and hitting each other. All right, Maggie. Hey, there. We got to wrap it up. Thank you again, Aaron, for for coming with us. So much. Yeah, this was great. I I hope you come back. I've got so many things I I want to talk to you about. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. I see you're anti-socialist. Let me convert you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.